Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We have an awesome guest with us here today for Spirit in Action. His name is George Lakey. George has been on the vanguard of nonviolent activism for over 50 years, both doing, innovating, and teaching ever more effective ways of helping humanity forward in so very many ways. His latest book is a memoir of the public and personal path George has trodden in his steadfast and spirit-led work, and it's called Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on this program. Dancing with History is an awe-inspiring book, so let's dive right in on Zoom with George Lakey. Wow, George, how wonderful to have you back again. So many times I've had you on Spirit in Action, and I just want you to live forever so I can talk to you every year or two. (laughs) I'll do my best. It's already 85 years on the planet for you, and I'm aware that along the way, even when you traveled to North Vietnam with the Phoenix to protest the American war in Vietnam, that when you took that boat trip, you were already reconciled to the fact that your life could end. Has this been a reconciling you've done frequently in your work for peace and justice activism? Well, I haven't been in highly threatening situations frequently, but every once in a while I am. And yes, in general, I've reconciled myself uh, to the possibility of my life being cut short by that kind of thing. However, I don't want it to be cut short by stupid stuff that I do (laughs) or or ways that I haven't been paying good attention to myself. And so I'm not reckless. One of the longest chapters in the book is how I managed to handle the cancer with the support of my community, a cancer that was supposed to kill me. And at that point, if you had asked George, is it okay with you to die? The answer would have been no way. I'm only halfway through my life or so. That was half a lifetime ago. I have lots to do and I'm going to keep on working on it. So things that I can take responsibility for, I'm actually cautious about and very interested in saving my life. On the other hand, things that I don't have responsibility for, like the people who've pulled a knife on me, for example, (laughs) or the people who've beaten me up, or certainly bringing medical aid in a war zone in Vietnam where there were guns everywhere. You know, those situations, yes, I take responsibility for putting myself in an exposed situation, but it's not like I would be pulling the trigger or I would be jabbing the knife. And again, in those situations, I do my best to keep myself safe, but I've also made my peace with the fact that as Dr. King, I think, had made peace with the fact that a violent end is a possibility. I should say right up front, I love the book. Of course, I already love you, but I love the book. There's layers of your life that I had no inkling of. For example, I never knew about your cancer experience. And the fact that I've gone through that just six years ago, supporting my wife as she defeated cancer. Having been through that, there's whole new ways in which my heart swells in appreciation and love for you. The name of the book, so is dancing with history. And I know you're a dancer too, but I really think that something like singing and playing show tunes with history might be more appropriate to who you've been. What do you think? (laughs) 
<laughs> I've happily da- folk danced with you, as you remember, but it's true that I more often <laughs> play the piano while people sing Broadway songs, uh, because I'm not a natural dancer at all, even though you make it fun for me to do. <laughs> the reason I chose Dancing with History is because there's an old dispute between people who emphasize we are the makers of history, and the, those are the people who write great male uh, stories, right? The great men of history who have made history. And so that's one view, which is that we make history. And the other view is, no, history makes us. History determines what goes on. And I think both of those views are too one-sided. And so I thought, well, what I try to do is dance with history, interact with history. That's, I think, a more correct and balanced way of looking at our lives. We influence some stuff, but of course, history influences the choices that we get to make. But we're still choiceful, and that's really important. And then in dancing, of course, very often, at least in couple dancing, you are paying attention to the other person, and you're responding to their moves, and they're responding to your moves. So that whole interaction is what I wanted to emphasize. And it's definitely an attitude that I've had for choosing the work that I've chosen over these 80-some years. You know, George, we have that love of dancing in common. I have a feeling that there's a poem that I wrote almost 20 years ago that I'm going to read to you now. This hour should be about George Lakey, but I'm going to share with you my poem, and I want to ask just how much you resonate with it, because I think it's one of the deep places of spiritual connection between you and me. The name of the poem is Waltz With Me, God. It goes, (laughs) Waltz With Me, God, or maybe let's cha-cha. So many dance lonesome, I'm so happy I've gotcha. To whirl me and twirl me, or maybe just stroll, when I yield to your leading, my life becomes whole. Swing with me, God, you could toss in a shottish. I can dance alone fine, but with you I'm part goddish. <laughs> a dipping and weaving in free-flowing time, my just-fine dance talents become motion sublime. What a great metaphor. And the other thing is that poem again, I call it Dancing with God, right? And I have a sense that all of your work is, in fact, Dancing with God, even though people won't hear you preaching. And that, you know, some people think that if you're a preacher, there's going to be sermonizing and blathering on and on. But of course, you're a Quaker preacher, which is a very different thing. Still, even though you absolutely do not sermonize like is so commonly done, could you say how important that God part of it is to you? Oh, it's extremely important. I've been getting emails from people who didn't realize how important that was to me. But on reading the book, it shines through very, very clearly that I've been God-led since I was a boy. In fact, that's how I got in trouble. (laughs) The first time I got in trouble over a social issue was at age 12 when the elders in my church which was an evangelical church, believed that I had the potential to become a boy preacher. And so they said, okay, a month from today, you get to be in the pulpit and you get to preach a sermon. It was basically my audition. And so I prayed and prayed to God, which I was very used to doing. This time it was praying to God for what I should preach about. And the message was very clear that I got, which was that it's God's will that there be racial equality. Now, this was 1949, 1949 in a small 
all-white town in rural Pennsylvania. The few black people anywhere near were outside the t- town limits. But that's what God told me to preach about. So, And that's what I did, create a sermon about and preached. And I thought, as I was doing it in you know my 12-year-old mind, I thought, hey, this is coherent. This is sensible. This is really great. This is good. I'm going to pass this audition. I'm going to be a boy preacher. And so I was very disappointed when the elders gave me the very clear signal, don't call us, <laughs> we'll call you. <laughs> which they never did. (laughs) Do you think it was just the issue race, which of course was not as clear in a lot of people's minds yet back then. There's so much improvement that has happened over the subsequent decades. But I sense that in evangelical circles, even as much as they consider themselves flexible and that they can do preaching and witnessing in any which way that they can innovate, it's still parroting how the other people do it. And you probably didn't do enough of that parroting. No, okay. If I got it wrong, I got it wrong. I I think I parted as much as I knew how to because that was my total exposure. I was in a kind of womb of evangelicalism. My whole family, we went to church twice, at least every Sunday, if not more than twice sometimes, and Wednesday night prayer meeting with my grandpa. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I was completely in that world and doing the very best I could to follow that tradition. Some people might think... And once they read Dancing with History, which if someone doesn't do that, I think they're just wasting their lives. That's how I feel about it. (laughs) They're going to wonder about your transition into a social justice activist. One question I have is, do you think it's stranger that coming out of a conservative-leaning evangelical church that you became a peace and social justice advocate, teacher, mover for all the rest of your life? Is that stranger Or is it stranger that more people, when they come face-to-face with the Sermon on the Mount, that they don't become peace and social justice activists, which is stranger? They're not coming to terms with the Sermon on the Mount as stranger to me, and I write about that. And, And I did have the opportunity later to represent Quakers in the National Council of Churches meetings of various kinds. I was on a committee in the National Council of Churches, so went up to New York monthly and met with this International Relations Committee. And because my expertise, I was in graduate school about all that. I was, you know, that was my expertise. And I was surrounded by a group of people, mostly they were ministers, but also teaching in seminaries and so on and so on. I was surrounded by non-pacifists. And so, of course, I really, you know, pushed them. And again and again, I would hear these really dodgy arguments for not being a pacifist while still trying to be in line with the Sermon on the Mount. And there's no way that I can see that anybody could do that. So, yeah, that set up a kind of basic misalignment between me and the folks who put the military empire called the United States of America first and still called themselves Christian. I didn't get that at all. I didn't think there was logic there, much less that there was spiritual discernment there. I think that the amazing thing is that this memoir, and it's a memoir that touches the important principles of nonviolent action, training, organizing, it's all that stuff, and it hits a lot of your personal life. But even with all that, just mentioning your connection with the National Council of Churches, you didn't include anything about that in the book. And I'm just wondering how many things you could have put in if you weren't limiting yourself to the 360 pages of Dancing with History. 
Well, I submitted first to the publisher, Seven Stories Press, my memoir that I was very proud of, and I submitted it for publication and got a personal call from the chief guy, the guy who founded the company, and he said, George, I've just read through your book, and I've got to say, we can't publish it at this present size because your last name is not Obama. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're considering changing it. <laughs> If your name were Obama, we could sell it, you know, and we still make a dime. But your name is not Obama. So it's going to be 115,000 words, period. Not a word more. So that was the painful part about this book, frankly. It was going through and throwing out so much material that I would have loved to keep uh, because I had to get it down to 115,000 words. (laughs) So we're touching on a few of those things that are not included in the book. I want to mention right away, folks, that George Lakey is touring quite a bit over this coming year, publicizing Dancing with History. If you're his close friend, he's likely to come to your town. Isn't that how these travels are set up, George? (laughs) Yes, that's how it works. (laughs) Tell our listeners for Spirit in Action a bit about your touring with Dancing with History. Well, I'm loving it, even though I haven't gotten in many places so far, New York, Baltimore, around in Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C. And I'll be in 20 states by the time I'm finished, plus Canada. And the the British are very eager for me to come over there. And I've done touring for, you know, for whatever, 40 years or something like that. So I'm used to it. And what's wonderful about it is that I get to see folks that I've gotten to know over the years, a lot of comrades in this or that campaign, because I've been involved in so many campaigns. I've lived in Europe and and I've done work in Asia. I've been around and and made friendships in so many places. Uh, So this tour gives me a chance to get back in touch with them. What's pressing me as an 85-year-old is how to keep track of all that, because I can't delegate that to the publisher. I need to do the organizing of the tour myself in order to make sure that I get to see as many of my friends as I can <laughs> in the process. <laughs> it's amazing. And again, you're 85 years old and this life full of work and organizing for peace and justice. We'll talk about details of that as we go on. But I still think the person, George Lakey, shines through this book. So one of the things that's amazing to me when I think of you doing this touring at 85. I'm 68 and I know the relative discomfort of traveling that wasn't there for me even about 10 years ago. And you talk in the book, especially about being an activist and avoiding burnout. One of the things you talk about is a sabbatical year so as to kick back and not be burned out. And then what you do for your sabbatical year is to go and do accompaniment with endangered people in Sri Lanka. Yeah, like that's really some kind of idea of a kickback. Are you pacing yourself with respect to this touring, this publicity for the book? I mean, you're taking a Saturday morning talk to me. Is this kicking back still? (laughs) Well, I am building in rest days. That's for sure. And there's some nights I'm in hotels rather than being with people because the social obligation of being with people can be itself a kind of wearing over time. And so I'm trying to take account of all that. We'll see how successful I am. And I, I take whole holidays of five days or six days with my longtime lover. And we just go to the, you know, go to Cape Cod together, or go to the Jersey Shore or someplace like that and just completely kick back. Those are restorative for me. 
Well, I'm glad you're taking care of yourself because we want many more decades of you on the earth. And your lessons are so, so valuable. And again, what you learned about, what you shared with all of us in the various organizations you've been part of, a Quaker Action Group with the Movement for New Society, in all of them, you've taught us how to do organizing better all along the way. You bring out the importance of strategizing and organizing. For instance, when you were talking at one point, you mentioned how the activist organizations and groups are flavored with hippieism, with hippie culture, which was opposed to structure, right? And I think it's one of the great crises that a lot of people don't know how to do community on the liberal and progressive end of the continuum, where often the attitude is something like, well, no, if you don't match me 100% in terms of values, priorities, methods, then I'm not going to be part of your group. That tendency makes it hard to gather the force to strongly oppose the united economic forces of the right. That's right. How much of your life has been fighting that wonderful gift, actually, that we got from hippie culture, the freedom to really be yourself and to supplement the need to work together in community? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like that's an important subtext of so much in dancing with history. Well, thank goodness people often are halfway there through their experience of hippie culture, whatever it's being called, you know, in the next decade, in the next decade, in the next decade, but getting that breath of fresh air, which people really love and deserve, can, as you say, lead them astray as well, can be alienating. And some of those wiser people wake up gradually and say, oh, wait a minute, but this is getting to be problematic. We're creating new rigidities in place of the old rigidities, we're doing, you know, some weirdnesses here. And here's this guy, George, coming along saying, guess what? We can have the best of both worlds. We can have the uh, continued development toward liberation of our individual persons at the same time as we're developing teamwork of the kind that, especially writ large, will be able to take on the powers that be. And the accomplishment of that is itself very good feedback, <laughs> you know, I mean, because what we can do through teamwork is empower ourselves. And liberation without empowerment is problematic. People may feel freer to do this or that, but that doesn't necessarily give them the power to determine the course of their own lives of the kind that they were expecting. And so, there's actually, it's possible to speak to the lack of the sort of mushy-gushy <laughs> experimental stuff, speak to the lack of that, and the more discerning people will get it, you know, when I point it out, and the less discerning people won't. And that's all right, because I long ago learned it's not everybody who have, helps to create a bandwagon. It's the more discerning people who, for one reason or another, like me in, you know, a little rural town. It wasn't everybody in the town who decided, oh, okay, it's God's will that there be racial equality. You know, but George spoke to some people and, hey, that's good. I think, especially for those of our listeners who are really interested in the peace and justice work that you've done throughout all these decades, I'm wondering if you could give me what you think are maybe your top three or five accomplishments, the top events, top organizing, top structures, whichever way you want to qualify it. Could you pick out a few of the pride moments from your long list of activism work? Well, the civil rights movement was so remarkable because what it was taking on was so huge that despite great accomplishment, 
We're still working on it today, right? That shows how built in structurally racism has been in our country. And that's because it served the purposes of those who've been running the country all these years. And so it's very, very hard to dislodge. So the fact that the civil rights movement was standing up against armed terrorists over and over and over again, especially in the deep South, and winning again and again. Like the example I talk about in the book is Mississippi. I was, by the way, a trainer for the training of a thousand young people in the North who went South to Mississippi to help the civil rights movement uh, work there and uh, survive. First of all, survive and then to work and to make progress. They were facing a Ku Klux Klan that wanted them dead. And an uppity black person was should be dead <laughs> from the point of view of these people with the guns. They were unable to stop the civil rights movement in, the, in Mississippi, uh, which was the most hardcore state. But in other states as well, they were unable to stop the civil rights movement because of its clarity about nonviolence and its ability to hold itself together under tremendous duress. And I saw that with my eyes. I was participating, my first time in jail was for civil rights arrest. And participating in that, I will, I would just never forget what an extraordinary thing that was. So that's number one. And number two, I would say would be the work we did to get the U.S. out of Vietnam. The U.S. did much worse in Vietnam than the Russians are doing in Ukraine right now. Much worse. And wanted to keep on doing worse. That was Nixon's full intention. Uh, LBJ had at least some ambivalence about whether it was a good idea to beat up on that peasant people half a world away. They had never done anything to us. B-52s, on and on and on and on. Killing, 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 beating up uh, people who never did anything against us. And Nixon inherited that job of the empire because the U.S. empire has uh, you know jobs to do. And, and still does. So that's what Nixon was doing. And he was prevented from continuing that empire policy and had to give it up because of the movement within the U.S. Yes, the Vietnamese were amazing in fighting back, amazing in fighting back. So nothing taking away from that. Nevertheless, if it hadn't been, and I got to know some of the uh, governmental people in North Vietnam because of the, the work that I was doing. And they were very clear about that. They said, if American citizens continue to go along with the empire's thing, we will all be wiped out in Vietnam. <laughs> Just be nothing, you know, uh, I, uh, supermarkets, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but that, that's all that will be left. Uh, because the U.S. already, by the time I entered that struggle in about, uh, I guess, 1965, already had done worse to Vietnam than Russia has done the U- to the Ukraine. And just then year after year after year after year of beating up on the Vietnamese people. And we stopped that. We were key. We weren't the only factor. There were people in other countries, in Britain and so on, who were also struggling against it. But we were key to that. So that was an enormous accomplishment. And then the third thing that I would mention is the uh, climate justice movement, which has brought the U.S. more and more and more. Now it's a majority. There used to be a majority that didn't even believe there was such a thing as a climate crisis. Uh, now a majority understands there's a climate crisis, a large majority. And we're making it more and more hot for the economic elite, which wants to continue to dig coal, wants to continue to burn gas, oil, and so on. And we're making it hotter for them. So one of the 
success stories I tell in the book is about how a small group of Quakers was able to force the seventh largest bank in the country out of financing mountaintop removal coal mining because they loved to blow up mountains in Appalachia for coal. And we forced them out of that business. A small group of Quakers did that. It's one of the proudest things that I've ever participated in. And these are only three of the many issues that you've put considerable energy into. I want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with George Lakey today, and I'm so grateful to be talking with him for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, so you'll find links there to connect up with George. One of the best ways to find out, for instance, about his tour is to go to wagingnonviolence.org. They'll have his schedule on there. You can search there for George Lakey, but I'll have that link on Northern Spirit Radio along with other links to connect up with him. So, northernspiritradio.org, head there, and you can listen to my previous interviews with him about his previous books, books like How to Win and Viking Economics and other books that he's written, all part of passing on his legacy and experience of organizing. He's not just a theoretical teacher, however. He's been in the trenches fighting for peace and justice over all of his long, long life. So northernspiritradio.org has those links, but also the links to all of our guests of the past. 17 and a half years. We've been doing this a long time, but it's just a little compared to what George Lakey has been doing. But there are some really, so many wonderful workers for peace and social justice in our shows and also on our Song of the Soul programs, people who are inspiring us through music, which is also near and dear to George Lakey's heart, which is one of the reasons his book is called Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice. On our site, you can post comments, give us feedback on our shows or suggestions about who to talk to. You can do all of that via nordenspiritradio.org and you can support us. George also prepared a video just today suggesting that people donate to us and that's one of the things I was going to ask you about later, George. I'm just giving you some notice that we'll be talking about financing social change because you don't talk a lot about how those things are financed. But I think it is a big issue for the left because we don't have a lot of the corporations supporting and underwriting us. So I imagine there are some organizations that you are part of the energy for that maybe people haven't even heard of organizations that were particularly valuable parts of your growth or maybe of activism's growth. Can you name some in the book that maybe people haven't heard of yet? Oh, yeah. One of the things that I tried to give full credit to in the book is how much I learned from my mentors. I was so lucky to be able to get close to people who had vastly more experience than I. Even as a teenager, I was already sensing who could teach me. And one of those people was a guy named Larry Scott, who is an unsung hero of many movements. And he said, George, there's a kind of ecology of every social movement. And just like if you go into a forest as an ecologist, you see how the different patterns of plants that grow so high, other plants grow so high, (laughs) there are trees, but there are different kinds of trees and so on. He said, if you understand the ecology of an environment, then you can understand better what there might be room for that's still not present. So he was a specialist in organizing organizations that would fill out the ecology of the social movement. 
And I followed his example. So when the Vietnam War came along, for example, and I realized that there was an ecology of Quakerism that involved a number of organizations that expressed Quaker values in this or that the other way, there wasn't at that time an organization that expressed the nonviolent direct action impulse that has existed in Quakerism since its founding over 300 years ago. And so I thought, well, okay, so let's get that to happen. That's where I happen to be. I, that's my own preference for taking action in the world is to f- use nonviolent direct action. I love how empowering it is. And there are bound to be a lot of other Quakers like me who would like to do that. And so we started the group. Larry Scott basically was the founder. He had been my mentor, but I was all in in terms of a more youthful guy who was saying, yes, 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 let's do this. So a Quaker action group is one of the groups that I don't think your listeners would have heard of before, but that played that startling role of commanding the American attention to the war zone in Vietnam by sailing a little sailboat, (laughs) harmless looking 50 foot sailboat with medical supplies to North Vietnam through the blockade created by the United States 7th Fleet. Extraordinary. You know, every night we were on Huntley Brinkley and Walter Cronkite and so on. The evening news, the network news, which in those days commanded America's attention because it was just such a very, very daring act. But it needed a new Quaker organization to be able to do it because the other Quaker organizations were busy doing their part of growing the forest. And analogously, I did that same thing over and over, including the group that also people haven't heard of right now that I found it called something kind of like it, Earth Quaker Action Team. (laughs) And that's the group that drove the bank out of financing mountaintop removal coal mining, Earth Quaker Action Team. We called it for short, Equate. (laughs) What might Equate be meaning? Well, a little bit like uh, equal has something to do with equality, right? (laughs) Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about the experience of the Phoenix Of course, folks, he spells it out in considerable more detail in Dancing with History, A Life of Peace and Justice. It's George Lakey we're speaking with today for Spirit in Action. The Phoenix is such an amazing story. As you said, facing down the Seventh Fleet and going through this with just a little sailboat, which was a strategic decision. If you'd done it in a gunboat, tried to slip past the Seventh Fleet, that would have been a very different experience. It wouldn't have been on nightly news, for example, and so on. So it's not even a motorized vehicle. It's a sailboat that you're taking in. Wow, what an (laughs) audacious decision. And somehow you got in more easily to North Vietnam than to South Vietnam. Right, that's right. Uh, surprisingly. (laughs) Say a little bit about your experience with that, because I guess, what, it took a month or something to do what you thought was going to be done in maybe just a few days. Yeah, actually, it was so complex strategically, that whole, because we did a series of sailing that same ship called the Phoenix into these different ports in North Vietnam, South Vietnam, in order to respond to people's concerns in a very, very strategic way at that time. And the complexity of that strategy helped to satisfy the fact that To me, it was like a a basic life change. I'd been headed for my PhD because I love teaching. I've taught at the University of Pennsylvania. I've taught at Haverford College, taught at Swarthmore College. 
love teaching, you know, bright, eager students. And the PhD is really the trade union card for doing that. And I gave it up and it had to do with, hey, I found an equivalent kind of complexity in trying to deal with large entities like the American Empire (laughs) in ways that help to build mass movements that can move that empire uh, or that can force that empire to do something it doesn't want to do. And so I describe in the book how that project of a 50-foot sailboat fit into that very complex task of strategizing. And it was just tremendous fun. The brainy side of that, the analysis side, was uh, tremendous fun to do. At the same time as, hey, had I ever been, you know, on a sailboat (laughs) confronting warships uh, in a war zone where every night over our mast would sail shells from gunboats onto the beach that we then decided we better swim toward and try to walk into the city of Danang in order to confront the uh, commander of the city of Danang and that region. It's too complicated, actually, to describe quickly on a radio show, so I won't even try to do that. But just to say for any of your listeners who not only like hair-raising adventure, because that's what that was. That definitely raised my hair. Being in that water surrounded by Vietnamese sailors uh, who were determined to, you know, lock me up. It was extraordinary uh, hair-raising adventure, but also uh, very, very complex at the same time. And, And I love that combination of adventure that passes a certain intellectual standard, too. And folks, you get the full detail in Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice by George Lakey. I've got links on northernspiritradio.org to George Lakey, author on Facebook, and to wagingnonviolence.org, where you'll be able to find his traveling schedule, where he'll be talking more about this, should you get a chance to hear one of his talks or even speak to him individually. One of the interesting things is that it does have something to do with what you just mentioned, George. You started going to school, you decided to pursue a degree, and then you got led away from that by the actual living out and learning of social activism in the trenches. But then later on in life, you get called back to teach those very students at the university that you didn't get a degree from, right? (laughs) You abandon your studies there, but then Swarthmore welcomes you back as a special guest lecturer, supposed to be there doing this special job for one year, but then it becomes two years and multiple other years. And then this becomes the Nonviolence Action Database there. Talk about how it feels to go back to an alma mater or a (laughs) partial alma mater, maybe since you didn't finish your studies there, but going back and becoming their prize teacher. Yeah, they're doing a very big launch for the book in uh, January, actually. So uh, in a few days, I'll be out there being honored and and all that, which is Tremendous fun with all those considerations. It was tremendous fun uh, teaching there because the, the students were so interested in going where no one had gone before, which is what I kind of specialize in. I love innovation. And so I taught highly innovative courses that nobody had ever taught before in the country and plowed new ground with those students ready to do whatever it took. At one point, because the, the U.S. has this genuine problem with terrorist attack, 
constantly, you know, there are terrorists trying to attack the United States, and the U.S. has developed the war on terror, right, a characteristic empire response. Well, if there's a problem, we make war on that problem. And because I'm an innovator, I knew we could do better than that. And so I created a course in which the students got to create strategies for dealing with terror and deterring terrorism nonviolently. And it was such a dazzling <laughs> course. The students worked like crazy. They all had to adopt the posture of a consultant to some country in the world that is threatened by terror, like Israel or some other country. Many countries are threatened by terrorism. And they had to pretend they were a consultant who were, was going to tell the government what to do. <laughs> and I gave them eight tools for their toolbox to be able to develop strategy, but none of those tools was a, was a military tool. So they were all non-military tools that the students had to work with. And they came up with brilliant papers. And the Pentagon called me up and said, hey, George, we want you to come down here and tell our counterinsurgency experts what it is you're doing at Swarthmore, because the word has already gotten down here <laughs> that you're doing some highly innovative work. And so I tell that story, too, in the book, what it was like to sit in the Pentagon, having gone through many layers of security to get into the inner sanctum where I got to sit and talk with counterinsurgency experts about what we were developing at Swarthmore as an alternative to what the Pentagon was doing. Do you have any sense that the Pentagon continued any of that study? Organizing internally, I mean. I think the conversion efforts that Gene Sharp tried to lead us into was, you know, it, it was a potential form of defense for this country. The Pentagon could have become a nonviolent peace advocate as well. Any sense that there are seeds growing from that in the Pentagon? Or were they all eradicated along the way by our various presidents, the military-industrial complex, etc.? Well, they were very frank with me at the end. You know, they, I said, now look, you the, are the experts in counterinsurgency. I'm not, actually. I know a tremendous lot about the eight tools because I chose power tools that are very, very important, but they're also nonviolent power tools. I don't know the field as such as counterinsurgency that you do. So I want your frank feedback. You know, criticize me. Tell me now how ridiculous I am and so on and so on. And the leader of the unit said, well, I know the body language of my colleagues here. It's obvious that we're all very impressed. We don't have a critique to make of your approach. It makes a tremendous lot of sense. So I said, oh, well, if it makes sense. And this was uh, President Obama's day as president. And uh, President Obama was known to be highly intellectual, very, very open-minded person. So I said, well, then let's, you know, how about the next appointment? We're going to be in the Oval Office. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that was naive George's uh, proposal. And they all smiled. And they said, well, what we know is that there's no way that the U.S. government could make this radical a shift. It's way too innovative for the government to be able to accept. It would get in the way of too many vested interests that find the present policy, which is the war on terror, to be highly convenient and highly profitable. And so uh, we did not go to the Oval Office and talk with President Obama. But I thought that the whole thing was very illuminating about what's really going on in our country in a way that it's sometimes hard to discern, especially when an agency in the government is pressing our, the fear button in us, which tends then to get us not to think innovatively, but instead tends to get us to think, you know, reach for the time-honored tool of violence as the solution to everything. That's a human tendency. It's not just a conservative tendency or governmental tendency. 
So, folks, one of the things that you can learn from George Lakey, from all of his books, but also from his latest, Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice, is that innovation, the alternative ways we could do things differently that would avoid our knee-jerk reactions. One thing that I respect highly, George, is your advocacy that the knee-jerk reaction of the people on the liberal end of the scale to deal with an issue by saying what we need is a demonstration or a march. Well, it's not that demonstration marches don't have their place. They do. But they're just one part of the strategic picture. And you'll learn that, folks, from George Lakey throughout all of his books. Some of the knee-jerk that we end up worrying about having to avoid is that there's a leveling of leadership that we do on the left, if you will. That it's like, no, we're all equal. In fact, there are lots of people with different gifts And leadership is certainly a gift. You talk about that with respect to coal miners. When you got involved there, you actually needed some strategic advantages and you needed some leadership to make this happen. Could you talk a little bit more about your learning on that issue? Well, it just always seemed natural to me. My dad really appreciated that. And so did my mom, that if there's somebody in our town that knows more than I do about something, let's go to that person and ask them about it. (laughs) And one reason they were so supportive, both of them had been forced to leave high school before graduation because it was depression time and their families needed them to leave high school so that the family could survive. And they hugely valued high school. And it was for both of them, my mom and my dad, a great tragedy in their lives that they didn't finish high school. So they were constantly pro-education with me. And, you know, find out what you can from people who've been down that road. And so I grew up assuming everybody would want to do that. (laughs) And there are always people who know more than I do about X and Y. I may be, as the innovator, the person who puts X and Y together, but I claim no amazing originality. It's just that I want the best thinking that there is or the most courageous thinking that there is in order to inform what I do. And I think that does show up in the book over and over and over where I'm doing innovative stuff. I want to talk to you about some of the vulnerability that you bring to Dancing with History. It's such an important part of the book, and it's one of the sides of you I... I'd known glimpses of it before, but I really feel like I know you as a person much more completely now because of the book. But let's talk about some of the things that happened for you personally. You mentioned already dealing with your dad that you grew up in a working class family, which is also what I did. Betsy Leander Wright, in her study of activism at different class levels, she talked about the differences in culture amongst working class folks, middle class folks, owning class, and how they would do activism. I really appreciate that about your work, your activism, because you bring and you involve, as you said, different parts of the ecology and to make any kind of activism work. One of the things that you highlight along the way, and it's certainly a vulnerable thing to talk about, is issues with your father. And I identify with you there because my father was a good, pure, working class man. As soon as he saw me on the TV news in the Milwaukee area saying that I wasn't going to pay for war and I was a war tax resistor, he called me up and says, what do you know about this asshole named Judkins who doesn't want to pay for war? (laughs) 
<laughs> do you feel like your issues with your father were healed or that they grew into something more fruitful over the long life of your activism? He loved to argue. And so that was a great thing in our favor because I was willing to argue. Sometimes I got tired of it, but well into you know older life, he would cling to his point of view as much as anything, I think, because he thought it was really fun to argue with his older son. And I was a good arguer and he was a good arguer. So that was a lively part of our relationship. The thing, though, about arguing that got me was that while it was a form I think of socializing for him and being with his boy. It didn't show the tender part. And I knew there was a tender part of my dad. So one of the things I was grateful for was that he died between semesters when I was teaching. And so I was with him a huge amount in that period. And he really let me love him in that period of of his dying. And I was there right through to the last breath that he breathed. And I was really so uh, sometimes contentious, I think partly because he sometimes found pleasure in the contention (laughs) relationship. It ended on such a note of sweetness. And I so appreciate him for that. He just really let me in. (laughs) And there's so much in Dancing with History that we could talk about. And I hope that people do read it because even knowing what I did about you, this book is an incredible gift to me. I want to talk about one of the most tender parts of your journey, and that has to do with your children. Having been active in the civil rights movement, having believed strongly in equality and being such a loving father with a loving wife like Barrett, and because you and Barrett didn't seem to be bearing the children you had hoped for, you adopted first Christina and then Peter, and they are both black and they're African-Americans. And even though you brought them all your love and your community support, still things did not go well. They went, in fact, seriously wrong. I think maybe they're at a decent place now with especially your grandchildren. And I know that you've got good connection with Christina, but Peter died along the way. Could you talk a little about, and this is a mystery to me, and I've heard it from other people and other Quakers that I know who've adopted interracial kids. It did not go well. If you can't make that kind of relationship work, who can? (laughs) Could you talk a little bit about whatever you feel free to share? Well, it was the personal experience that others in our country now are experiencing intellectually by reading the 1619 material and so on. You know, it's a kind of recognition of just how hard racism hurt us as a country. We were looking at cross-racial adoption in a superficial way, just as I think, uh, you know, in the civil rights days, we were looking at it also in a superficial way. <laughs> we thought, you know, mass movements change, change, change. And of course, if our country had changed in the way we wanted it to change and created economic equality rather than more and more inequality, I think things would be way, way better racially than they are now. Nevertheless, we still were, I think, on a cultural level, misreading, that is not fully enough appreciating how deeply ingrained racism is in our country, including in ourselves, Barrett and me. So as the child-rearing process went year after year after year, we kept being surprised. We kept being thrown off guard by the amount that racism was poisoning our uh, relationship with our, our boy and our girl. And we, we spent enormous amounts of time with child-rearing experts, you know, and therapists galore, 
And nobody understood it. Nobody really got fully, at least a saving understand, a really deeply, deeply therapeutic understanding of how to liberate ourselves from the binds that we got into. The superficial stuff was easy, but the deep stuff that nobody could even recognize was the hard stuff that got in our way. Yeah, so lots of pain, tremendous, tremendous lot of pain. You express deep vulnerability when you talk about your experience with cancer. You got a kind of cancer where they kind of said, well, sorry, you're going to be gone soon. Obviously, you survived. It's all recounted there in Dancing with History, but what would you care to share with our listeners about your experience of dealing with cancer? It was such a team effort in my case. I was so fortunate to be part of an activist community that I'd been one of the chief facilitators for bringing together and having no idea that I would need it <laughs> personally in such a deep way. Uh, I knew I needed it, but, you know, just like any, any of us would. And they rallied around in an extraordinary, extraordinary way. The hospital where I spent a month, believe it or not, I still looking back, am amazed at the uh, attention that I got from the medical world. They didn't write me off. I mean, they really, really, really struggled, even though, it looked fairly hopeless. I was there for a month and my community was there night after night after night. They rented a private room in the hospital, which I couldn't afford, but the group, you know, came together and put the money up so that I could have a, my own room so that they could be there night after night and take turns and be, just be there uh, because it was a terrifying experience for me. And, and so having always reassurance from really, really thoughtful and caring people. Plus, you know, I was a family person. I had a couple of children by then. So there was all of that. It was like a campaign. It, it was like a direct action campaign with the community saying, okay, so this happens to be the kind of campaign we're doing now. And we will go together on it and make it happen. And that turned out to work really well. It was a multi-dimensional approach we also used. I had a group, a small group of uh, fellow strategists who were strategizing about the, the health uh, approaches that we would take, the therapeutic approaches we would take, what it would take to make me well. And it worked. There is one more personal thing I want to ask you about. You talk in the book, George, about how hard it was when you spoke before the Friends General Conference gathering and you said, I'm gay. Now, that was a long time ago, and early enough on the Quaker timeline, that non-standard sexuality was still somewhat dicey, or really rather very dicey. So the guts that you exhibited doing that were really immense. So I have a tough question for you. Which is harder, saying that you were gay back then in front of the French General Conference gathering, or talking to activists and saying how deeply you connect with Jesus? Because I think they're probably equally difficult tasks on the opposite side of the aisle. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. Some people would expect me, after I announced that Jesus was so special for me, expect a sermon, you know, or a, a way of putting them down. So there is that kind of fear about that. <laughs> I want to ask you now about financing. Bringing together funds on the left is far different than financing on the right. On the right, you know, you can go to a conservative rich person or people, you go to the big money interests and you get financing for whatever you want to do. Financing on the left, how do you do that? Because I guess that's probably where I live. <laughs> 
Well, it's about credibility, I think. So in that way, it's like all fundraising. It's about offering people the opportunity to give to keep something going or to start something new that would be implemented by somebody that they can believe in. And people found it easy from a young age uh, for me, easy to believe that I would do well with their money, that I would spend it wisely. And the, the project I was asking to support, you know, had a reasonable chance of making a difference. And so that's what I offered. I offered credibility and found myself to be a successful fundraiser in that way. And so the projects that I wanted to do where I would be, especially if the projects where I would be the director or the manager of the project was where the credibility especially mattered, right? So asking for money that they knew would include paying me to be, you know, enabling me to afford putting my time and effort into it. They thought, yeah, this is a good bet. You know, we believe in George, here's money. But you really didn't talk about financing hardly at all in Dancing with History. And part of my question was, I think that people on the conservative end of the scale, people who are more likely to be churched and all that, they're used to giving a tithe, tithing more than the individuals on the left are likely to do. On the left, we're more likely to do it through organizations, or maybe there's a liberal benefactor or benefactors. How did you do your financing? Was it individual, you know, let's get a crowd of 10,000 people to kick in some bucks, or is it, you know, let's get an organization or well? wealthy, liberal benefactor. What more often was your approach? All of the above, depending on how innovative the project was. The most innovative was giving me a sabbatical. (laughs) (laughs) Because usually it was a project to get something done. You get a campaign going or some innovation required, for example, training for change. We knew a new, more innovative approach to training needed to happen. I was gifted in that way to be able to pull that off. People believed in me and my ability to do that. And so we had to raise the money to create an organization in order to be able to do that. And that was 30 years ago, and it's still going strong. Uh, we did trainings in, uh, well, I've done trainings in on five continents, over 1,500 trainings. So people believed in that. And so I was able to raise money from wealthy people on the basis of my credibility. Well, George, I'll say it again. There's so much in the book. We haven't even scratched the surface. But I hope people will get and read the book, Dancing with History, that they'll hear you as you tour around. Remember, folks, you can find out about George Lakey's schedule by searching on the wagingnonviolence.org website. The schedule's there. You can also go to Facebook, George Lakey Author. But those links are on northernspiritradio.org, so come to my site and we'll connect you up with George. There's so many people you've mentored and nurtured in your life. Daniel Hunter certainly comes to mind, George. And I feel like you've nurtured and supported my work. You prepared the ground ahead of me and so many others, and I'm so thankful for all the gifts that you've given the world and just the gift of your humor, your singing, and for sharing so much with us here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, George. You're so welcome. Happy to be here. And again, the links are on nordenspiritradio.org. The other interviews I've done with George Lakey as well, please come there, check them out, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.